The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. More information about Shiloh Presbyterian Church is available at shilohopc.org. Men will please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. Turn, if you will, into the book of Romans. We start a new series this morning, Paul's letter to the Romans. We're reading from chapter 1, verses 1 to 7. And then moving to verses 16 and 17, using that as a springboard to really investigate uh, the epistle by means of an overview of its teaching. So Romans chapter 1, verses 1 to 7, and then verses 16 and 17. This is God's Word. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Amen, and thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray. Lord God, we would now know of your righteousness. We would know of the gospel. We would know much of our Savior and much of our response to it. Lord, (coughs) give unto us all that is necessary for faith and life now in this time, that our hearts may be set upon you and stirred up unto love and good works. Do for us what we cannot do for ourselves, Almighty God. May your Spirit work freely in our midst, for we ask this in the name of our Savior. Amen. Please be seated. Well, as I mentioned, we're commencing a new series in uh, Paul's epistle to the church at Rome, an epistle which really is a grand defense of the righteousness of God in judgment and the righteousness of God in salvation. It's the gospel and the righteousness of God which is revealed as the central theme of this epistle. And we're driven back to the character and the actions of God in salvation. And Paul is seeking to vindicate God in this matter. He is righteous both in judgment and in salvation. And Paul will spend many pages speaking about the glorious and great salvation which has been wrought on our behalf. He'll take us to the heights of our wonderful salvation in Christ. And then in his epistle, on the back of that, he will build, he will call the Christian to action. 
So we have the gospel, then we have how we are to conduct ourselves. Christian action, Christian living, particularly Christian thinking, how we are to think as Christians as a result of the gospel of Jesus Christ. When we do that, we bring glory to God and we stand firm in our holy faith. This morning, I want to really take a very high view of the whole epistle by means of introduction, asking something about the writer to the Romans, not the people, as I've said in the outline, the writer to the Ro- of, of Romans. And then secondly, we look at the argument of Romans, the writer and the argument of the epistle to the Romans. First of all, the writer We're introduced to the writer in verse 1 himself, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle. I hope you noticed that the introduction of this epistle is much longer than any other introduction of all of Paul's epistles. We have here seven verses. I've not done a word count, but in word count and in verse length, this is by far the longest introduction to any of Paul's epistles. 1 Corinthians has three verses, 2 Corinthians two verses, Galatians has three verses. You get the picture. We have seven verses introducing us to who Paul is and particularly what his office is. Now, we're going to come to verses two through seven next week. But look at the component parts of the first seven verses. First one, we have Paul and his office. He's a servant and an apostle set apart for the gospel of God. Then secondly, in verses two to six, he's going to give a description of the one who called him to that apostleship, Christ, a very lengthy description of our Lord Jesus Christ. We'll consider that on its own next week. Verse 7, he tells us who the letter is addressed to, and then he has that traditional greeting or salutation at the end of verse 7. Now, the length and the content of this introduction tells us something peculiar about Paul, peculiar about Paul, and gives us insight into why and how he wrote this epistle. Notice he uses the word of servant. It's the same word in the Greek as slave. He is a servant of Christ Jesus. Paul understands he is a man under authority. If Paul didn't write Hebrews 5 verse 4, he certainly agreed with it. One does not take the honor upon himself, but he is called by God. One does not take the honor of office to one's self. That's to say, Paul understood he was not self-appointed. He was not self-motivated. It was not his message and his agenda of which he was an ambassador. The ambassador declares what the king or lord tells him to declare. A servant or a slave does what he is told. He carries out his master's will. But to the word servant, Paul also adds an office, a title. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle. An apostle is one who is sent, sent by someone else. And it's interesting 
Paul was not one of the twelve apostles. If we ask ourselves how many apostles were there, uh, I suppose we could answer in different ways. Twelve would be one correct answer, but thirteen would also be a correct answer. Remember, after Judas uh, kills himself, uh, the early church appoints Matthias to take his place. There's your twelve apostles, but Paul is most certainly also an apostle. He is called and sent by Christ. He is one of the thirteen apostles. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. He most certainly fulfilled the criteria, as the others did, of what it is to be an apostle even though he was appointed later and in a different fashion to the other apostles, he still fulfilled that fourfold criteria of apostleship. He was firstly chosen by Christ. Secondly, he was an eyewitness of the risen Christ, not least on the road to Damascus. Third, he was endowed with a special measure of the Holy Spirit to carry out his apostleship. And fourth, his ministry was confirmed by signs, wonders, and miracles. Paul was an apostle. And yet the text tells us he was set apart. Set apart for the gospel of God. How was he set apart? In what manner was he set apart? Well, clearly he's set apart by Christ. We know that. After Christ's resurrection, it is Christ who appears to him on the road to Damascus and appoints him as an apostle, we'll notice, in a different way than he appointed the other twelve. But not just as he set apart from ordinary life and his previous life to be an apostle, I also think he is set apart from the twelve apostles. There is a distinction, even though it's slight, to be made between him and the other apostles. It's not a distinction of office. The twelve are apostles. He is an apostle. But it's a distinction of function or a distinction of ministry. Paul was peculiarly set apart to the gospel, bringing the gospel to the Gentiles, set apart for the gospel of God. He picks up on that idea again in verse 5, which we'll consider more fully next week. He says of Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. Among all the nations, Paul is called peculiarly to a ministry to the Gentiles, the nations, perhaps in a fashion that no other apostle was. That's not to say the twelve didn't minister to Gentiles. We know they did. And it's not to say that Paul didn't minister to Jews. We know he did. But his calling, friends, is peculiar to the Gentiles. As we look at the book of Acts, as we see through the rest of his ministry, it's very clear Paul's dominant ministry is among the nations. In other words, we're saying something special, not just about Paul, but we're talking about redemptive history. You hear that term a lot from this pulpit. What is redemptive history? It's the history of God working out salvation from Genesis 1 verse 1 all the way through to Revelation 22 verse 21. 
if we can imagine a great banner of salvation and the enacts, the covenants, the promises, the people, the cross, that is the history of redemption. Paul's apostleship marks a peculiar development in that history of redemption, the bringing of salvation to the Gentiles, the bringing of salvation, as he says, to all the nations. And I'm certain, because Paul knew his Old Testament, I'm certain that Paul has in mind when he writes that the promise and covenant of God, which God made to Abraham, in your seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. In other words, with Paul, with the ascension of Christ, the Great Commission, and particularly Paul's ministry, we are seeing a new epoch of redemptive history, a new time where salvation comes not just to the Jewish covenant people, but to all the nations. God's plan was and was being fulfilled in Paul to bring salvation not only to Jew, but also to Greek or to Gentile. And yet, what is the message that Paul carried with him, not only in this letter, but in his wider ministry? What is the message to the Romans. We'll take that as our second point, the argument or the message of Romans. It's really summed up in verses 16 and 17 of our first chapter. Verses 16 and 17, which we'll consider briefly and use that as a springboard to investigate these themes through the entire epistle. Verse 16, Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Most commentators agree that this is the thesis statement, the, the central teaching of the entire epistle of the Romans. And I think we can identify at least four main elements of this thesis statement, the purpose statement. Firstly, there's the gospel. There is the gospel. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because he says it's the power of God unto salvation. Why would he be ashamed of the power of God which has saved him and he is going out to declare it to others? The gospel is a central point of the epistle to the Romans. But secondly, it's the gospel not just to Jew, but to Jew and to Gentile. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. Paul understands his own ministry is to Jew and is to Gentile and is centered upon the idea of the gospel which brings salvation alike to both kinds of people. The third main point we see here is the righteousness of God. This is one of the central thrusts of Paul's epistle here. Verse 16 and 17 reveal to us that in salvation, God's righteous character is revealed. That the gospel is not only providing salvation for sinners, but that God remains righteous while providing salvation for sinners. 
the gospel of saving grace does not compromise God's character. Rather, it reveals it. And as we work our way through the text, we'll see why Paul's concerned with this. The gospel does not compromise God's righteous character. It establishes it. It reveals it. How does it do that? Fourthly, principally by the doctrine of of justification by faith alone. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. This is another central component whereby Paul defends the gospel, establishes Paul's, uh, establishes rather the righteousness of God. We've got the gospel the gospel to the nations, Jew and Gentile. We've got the righteousness of God, and we've got the doctrine of justification by faith as the means by which Paul establishes those things. If you can remember those four things, remember them. The gospel, the gospel to the nations, the righteousness of God, and the doctrine of justification. Keep those, and you shall do well. But immediately after verse 17, there's kind of an abrupt break in the text. It's not actually, but it just seems that way. We've got the the righteous living by faith. And immediately verse 18, and this is where we survey the text of, of Romans, we have God's wrath on the unrighteous. And what Paul is actually doing is not only stipulating that, yes, there is a judgment on the unrighteous, but that God himself is righteous in bringing that judgment. We read 118, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Paul is going to speak peculiarly here of man's wickedness against knowledge, against God, against nature. He states what can be known of God in the, in, in the world is plainly seen, but men suppress that truth in order to live the way that they wish to live. And indeed, some have given themselves up to diabolical sins, which God then himself gives them up to as a judgment. The result, we see chapter 2, verse 2, we know that judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. And that's not for the Jews in the Roman church to think, well, we're better than all those people out there who are doing those things, because the reality of judgment, Paul states in 2.12, is universal. Universal judgment on Jew and Gentile alike for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Jew or Gentile, you're going to be judged. Why? Because everyone is a sinner. Regardless of your covenant background or ethnicity, Paul says, verse 25, for circumcision is indeed of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. Jew or Gentile, it matters not. He's establishing the fact that all mankind is under God's wrath and curse. Moreover, he's establishing that God is faithful in that reality. But that raises a question, doesn't it? Is God righteous in condemning his historical covenant people? 
to whom he made promises and covenants and assurances. You see, Paul answers the question in what would have been a surprising fashion for his readers. Chapter 2, verse 29. He says, a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart and spirit, not the letter. What's he doing? He's just breaking open the door to this idea that God's people are just the ethnic people he has chosen in the past. He's saying one is a Jew, and this is staggering when you think about the setting to which he's writing. One is a Jew, one is a child of God, a member of the covenant, not if one has received circumcision, but if one is circumcised in heart. Circumcised in spirit. In other words, has faith in the Savior. You see, he's establishing God's righteousness in judgment even upon the Jews. He says, verse 9 of chapter 3, What then, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Yes, God is righteous in judging the wicked, whether Jew or Gentile. The righteousness of God, remember that third point of verses 16 to 17, the righteousness of God is manifested and revealed not only in the gospel, but in judgment also. But Paul also anticipating another query to the righteousness of God, which we'll see in chapter 9 through 11, tells us that the righteousness of God is also seen in salvation. In salvation, chapter 3, verse 21 and 22. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Paul's saying whether you're Jew or Gentile, which in the church was the major dividing line, it matters not. The righteousness of God is manifested through faith in Jesus Christ, apart from the law. We continue reading in verse 22, For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through redemption that is in Christ Jesus. See what he's saying? The righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. To Jew, to Gentile, it matters not. There is no distinction. God is righteous in salvation. And to prove his point, who does he take as an example of this gracious salvation and the doctrine of justification? Who does he set before his readers and us as an example? Chapter 4, Abraham. Abraham. Uh, that's why Abraham in chapter 4 and verse 11 is called the father of all who believe. Abraham was justified by faith. Chapter 4, verse 3, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. And so Paul spends chapter 4 and chapter 5 speaking, and really chapter 3, speaking of the marvelous doctrine of justification by faith. Now we need to pause here for a moment because this is a central element of uh, Paul's argument and a central element of the gospel. 
you need to <coughs> you need to know friends the doctrine of justification by faith alone is the doctrine that sets apart biblical christianity from much of the christian church it sets us apart <coughs> the doctrine of justification is hated by the church of rome So much so that many Roman theologians have called the doctrine of justification by faith alone a legal fiction. A legal fiction. You know what legal fiction is, don't you? It looks good on paper but lacks substance. Like a, 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 a marriage of convenience where somebody might enter a country to get citizenship. They do so by marriage. On paper, those people are married, but in real life, there's no marriage there. It's a legal fiction. The Church of Rome states God can't simply declare someone to be righteous while they remain unrighteous. And in a sense, they're right, because God doesn't simply declare us to be something we are not. He makes us something different. He reckons us righteous. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him. You see, the doctrine of justification is no mere declaration. It's not simply a statement. It is God imputing the righteousness of Jesus Christ to those who receive Christ by faith. That's the righteousness of God being revealed while justifying the ungodly. The righteousness of God who is both the just, righteous, and the justifier of the ungodly. The righteousness of God is revealed. This is crucial to our faith, friends, crucial to your faith. Your salvation, your justification, your right standing before God is not a legal fiction. It has real substance to it. Why? Because faith in Christ unites you to the perfect Savior, so that his righteousness is yours. Faith in Christ unites you to the crucified Savior, so that your sins are actually forgiven. Faith in Christ unites you to the risen Savior, so that now you may walk in newness of life and have hope of life everlasting with him. This is not a legal fiction. It's a reality. How could we be united to Christ, in Christ, without having what is his? Now, that's a legal fiction. No, when we're united to Christ, we have his righteousness. And Paul immediately explains the benefits of that in chapter 5. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace when natively what we knew was enmity and war and hatred with God. That's what is ours by nature. And that's ours because what Paul says in chapter 5 about being originally in Adam. We're talking now the language of federal theology. We'll use that term often. It means representative. We elect officials over us, supposedly, to represent us. doesn't always work that well, but that's the idea. They represent us. Chapter 5, Paul tells us of two great representatives in the history of humanity. You're either in Adam, 
He's at the top of the pyramid where beneath him, or you're in Christ. If you're in Adam, everything that Adam did, you did in him. Everything that happened to Adam happened to you in him. When he fell, you fell with him. We fell with him. We all did. Or we're found in Christ. He is our great representative. So that everything is true about him is in some way also blessedly true of you, dear Christian. That's good news. Whatever we inherited naturally from being in Adam is undone, redeemed, perfected, made amends by being in Christ by faith. That's how central the doctrine of justification and federal theology is, not only to Paul's argument, but to your life, dear friend. Now, what kind of person, or rather what kind of behavior, does such a person give after that? There's a transition here in chapter 6. Paul answers the question, chapter 6, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? We've been saved by grace. Shall we, shall we abuse that grace and continue in sin? Paul says, may it never be. How shall we who die to sin live in it? And Paul is building here to the, listen to this, the first commandment that we are to observe in the entire book of Romans. Romans 6, 11. Think on this for a minute. Paul has not been eager to provide you with a list of to-dos and to-don'ts. Because that would compromise the righteousness of God and his doctrine of justification until we get to chapter 6, verse 11. And then when he gives that command, it's not a command about being busy with your hands or with your feet or, or doing things externally. You know what the command is, don't you? So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. You must, there's the command. You must what? Consider. Isn't that amazing? The first thing Paul says the Christian is actually to do in this entire epistle is to think. Think properly conclude. Reason within yourself. What? That you are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Paul is saying to you the first thing you do every morning you wake up, every night when you lay your head down is this, regulate your thinking according to the truths of the crucified and risen Christ regulate your thoughts. We know how hard that can be. We know how hard it can be. Paul's first command to us in Romans, think. Think well. Think righteously. Be what you are. What are you? Chapter 6, verse 18, you are slaves to righteousness. Be what you are. And Paul uses that to move into chapter 7, where he deals with that great conflict that dwells within him and within every Christian. The doctrine of sanctification. The doctrine of sanctification, holiness, how we think, how we live, how we speak. Paul says there's within me this principle. It's a principle of sin. 
There's a principle of life within me also, but I find the two war, he says. They fight against each other. And on a daily basis, Paul says this, I want to do what is good, but I don't do it. And I don't want to do what is evil, but I do it. A wretched man that I am, he says, who will deliver me from this body of death? He answers there in 725. Thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ has delivered us. Christ keeps us. The Spirit works in us. So even though sin remains in us, life Christ, the Spirit, also dwell within us so that we live in a certain way. The result, the result of this justification and our walk in sanctification, chapter 8, verse 1, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For though the, the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ from the law of sin and death. To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. So much so, indeed there is so much peace available to the Christian, not with, notwithstanding our own efforts to, to rid ourselves of peace at times. There is so much peace available for the Christian between you and God. Paul writes this in 838. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing, nothing can separate the Christian from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Friends, that's real. We don't always feel that peace. We feel the struggle. But there is an objective reality to the gospel, an objective reality to the righteousness of God manifested. Listen, if we didn't have peace with God, given the gospel as it's laid out in Scripture, God would be unrighteous because he would not accept the terms of what's been done in Christ. But he has accepted Christ. He's raised him from the dead so that we might have peace. But is God righteous with respect to his people Israel? Chapters 9 through 11, Paul's writing about the doctrine of election, God's plans, debated as they are, for the nation of Israel present and future. You have to wait until Pastor Rogan gets to chapter 9 through 11. He did that to me a few weeks ago, didn't he? So I'm getting him back. But whatever our conclusion, as Pastor Rogan articulated in Sunday school a few weeks back, we should have a, a view of God's faithfulness, which is what Paul is laying out. God's faithfulness, God's righteousness, that at least he may bring the Jews back into the kingdom. At the very least, he may. And from there, Paul transitions again to a more practical section, chapters 12 to 14, exhorting us to live according to the salvation truths 
he has delineated. He says, chapter 12, live according to your giftedness, live according to the principle of love. Chapter 13, live in submission to lawful authorities over you. Chapter 14, live in a manner that does not cause your brother or sister to fall. In chapter 15, he returns to the earlier themes of the beauty of Christ as the hope of salvation for Jew and Gentile. And chapter 16, he wraps the entire epistle up with closing instructions and his greetings and benediction. We've done it. We've got through Romans. What do we take from this, friends? First this, there is a righteous God and there is a judgment. There is a righteous God, and there has to be a judgment. Dear friend, if you find yourself in Adam, that means no faith in Christ. If you find yourself in Adam this day, you must know and hear right now, if you never hear it again, being in Adam means condemnation, death, and hell. We urge you this day, repent and believe for the salvation of your soul. But secondly, we also see that God is righteous in salvation. What a remarkable salvation this is. Paul proves God righteous. Paul proves God faithful in salvation. He is just in salvation, just as he is just in condemnation. And the fact that God is just in salvation means that our salvation is certain. If God were to simply try and sweep our sins under the carpet without dealing with them properly, or somehow declare us righteous in his standing without actually making us or reckoning us righteous, then we of all men and women are most to be pitied, because we're not saved. But God is righteous. His salvation is perfect. It does not compromise his holy and righteous character. It establishes, it reveals his character for all to see. And friends, in that there's great assurance. Don't leave this sermon doubting your salvation. Leave this sermon being assured of your salvation. God is righteous in salvation. He is perfect. That means he's provided a perfect saviour. And he's given faith that perfect means by which we, dear Christian, are united to Christ. The doctrine of justification by faith alone is not a legal fiction. We are not deluded. We are not hopeless. Because of Christ, we have peace with God. Now let that sink in. Let that sink in. It's complicated stuff, Romans. We've not come here this morning for a tea party, have we? We've come to worship the living and true, the righteous God, whose salvation is deep as it is wide. And so, friends, as I've said before, let these truths commandeer your hearts and thus give glory to God and stand firm all the days of your lives. Let's pray. Lord, in the depth of your word, give us clarity and insight, wisdom and understanding. Trust in you and in your only Savior 
and in the only mechanism for salvation. Lord, be pleased to bless us, your people, with that faith by which we might live, that faith which makes us righteous, that faith which unites us to the righteous Saviour. Be pleased to work in our hearts this day. For we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.